evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition. Hope your weekend's going well. Special hello if you've downloaded the podcast. Hello, hello, whatever time of the week it is. Grant Smithies is away for a few weeks, and I am using this time to fill up the Shipwreck Tales archive. Some of them were jettisoned overboard, unfortunately, uh, in a big transfer from one web format to another. Um, I, you know how these sort of things can happen. So tonight, the tale of the Cost Patrick between 11 o'clock and 12. Uh, kiddies, you should be in bed by then. Up to this point, they've been putting the bodies over the side, but eventually the decision is taken by unanimous agreement that they, they really just have to start living off the dead and so a couple of couple of the bodies are butchered and uh, they get what fluid they can from the bodies as well they drink their blood basically but they drink their blood and of course the blood doesn't flow in a dead body so they need to create they need to cut the, the dead flesh and then suck on it to, to get fluid out mm. yeah John McChrystal's amazing shipwreck tales. So they're going to be on for a few weeks. Ones that aren't at the archive, so you're unlikely to have uh, heard them off the web. Uh, kiddo. On also later this evening, I recommend having a listen to Andrew Copson. He's visiting New Zealand, um, and he's the chief executive of UK Humanists. What on earth is that? He fights for people's liberties and freedoms and oppression against oppression from religion, you should say, I would say. And the rights of the secular community. He's a great chat. You can check him out on YouTube. He's everywhere. Andrew C-O-P-S-O-N. If you want to have a look at him in action, if you want to hear him in action, that'll be later on tonight, around the 10.30 mark. Good evening. Science this hour. Tremendous astronomy news, but next up, physicist Sean Handy. We're going to tick the boxes that science fiction predicted that we actually have today, and also put crosses in boxes for why aren't we flying to work and other such things. It's good fun. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Science Report with Sean Handy. This is going to be fun, folks, because it's something we do. I do it sometimes when mowing the lawns. I have a bit of a daydream about, oh, what could the future bring and things like that. And it's really easy, if you're of any vintage, to think, hark back to the time when you wondered what the future was going to be like and hello we're here now yeah. and compare the differences compare Absolutely. and contrast yeah 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 no it's a, it's it's the you know the future is all, is is here but it's unevenly distributed i guess <laughs> yeah yeah nicely put um one of the better uh, have a go at this, people. It's been Arthur C. Clarke. He's got some things wrong. We love to cherry pick. Yep. But hell, it's a hell of a cherry to pick, isn't it? His description of the internet. This is from 1974. Yeah, wow. I brought along my son Jonathan, Hi. who in the year 2001 will be the same age as I am now. Maybe he will be better adjusted to this kind of world that you're trying to portray. The big difference when he grows up, in fact, if we wanted to wait for the year 2001, is that he will have 
in his own house. Not a computer as big as this, but at least a console to which he can talk to his friendly local computer and get all the information he needs for his everyday life, like his bank statements, his theater reservations, all the information you need in the course of living in a complex modern society. This will be in a compact form in his own house. He'll have a television screen like these here and a keyboard, and he'll talk to the computer, get information from it, and he'll take it as much for granted as we take the telephone. I wonder, though, what sort of a life would it be like in social terms? I mean, if our whole life is built around the computer, do we become a computer-dependent society and a computer-independent individuals? In some ways, but they'll also enrich our society because it'll make it possible for us to live really anywhere we like. Any businessman, any executive could live almost anywhere on Earth and still do his business through a device like this. And this is a wonderful thing. It means we want him to be stuck in cities. We better live out in the country or wherever we please and still carry on complete interaction with human beings as well as with other computers. Yeah, no, fa fantastic. I mean, you know, really nails it. He really understands that we're going to be working, living remotely, um, interacting with people via video conferencing. Yeah, he, he saw that um, at, oh. you know, 1960s, 1970s. That's, yeah. That's remarkable. He's really, if you go back, there's a lot of cherries to pick of, of his. I mean, one of my favourite ones is, is geosynchronous satellites, which actually we probably don't think about much these days because they're just up there <laughs> you know they're part of our infrastructure now so here's a science fiction writer thinking about the future and actually predicting we'll, we'll have these things that they sit up above us there's a particular orbit around the earth where the satellite is rotating at exactly the same speed so um, it would be a star in the sky not a moving satellite yeah yeah that's right so it's not going to move relative to you and so we have those things that's pretty impressive for a sci-fi writer. Yeah. Okay. Things, first of all, that we thought we were going to have that haven't happened. 1969 is my favourite year because when I think about it, the pinnacle of what we thought was going to be the future that never happened. And it was big tech. Problems of complexity came along and things like that, of course. But hovercraft, Concorde. It was just going to be the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah. Hovercraft was going to be the beginning. We'll have flying cars yep, yep. next. Uh, we'll go to the moon. Oh, we'll be on Mars. Yep. By, easy by 74. <laughs> yeah. The Beatles released Abbey Road and broke up. Yeah. So it, we didn't even get another <laughs> so, Beatles so, album. So, so a big year. I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> I was still on my way. Hovercrafts and Concords, of course, you know, the, the things that we, well, we've had, we've had them. It's we've, gone we built them. backwards. There isn't a supersonic um, airliner. But then it didn't, it turned out they weren't economic. No. You know, we, and, and that's a lot of technologies doesn't just depend on our ability to do things or our ability to understand the science, but actually do people want it? And is it economic? You know, you think of the amount of money that went into putting people on the moon mm. uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. We had the technology, we did it. But in the end, you know, we have to say it probably wasn't worth it. We didn't get out of it. What, you know, it wasn't something that we wanted to keep going mm. and keep doing. No, and who knows? We may get back there as, as, as the cost drops, as we develop some of these low-cost rockets, and it may become viable again. But Why the, would we want to go, though? Yeah, you could do some interesting things, perhaps, mm. um, but not that interesting. One of the most, <laughs> and there's some big downsides. <laughs> yeah, and, and one of the um, signifiers of optimism were sci-fi shows, like a UFO was set yep. in 1981, and then yep. it was Space 1999. That's right. Yep. It had a station on the moon. You know, I mean, some, some of the things that might be 
interesting to do on the moon is, is of course, you know, manufacturing spacecraft. If we build things down here, we've got to get them out of the Earth's gravity well, and that, you know, that requires a lot of energy, and energy means money. Um, and so if we could actually manufacture craft on the moon, that would be, you know, it's much easier to get them off the moon and out um, into the solar system than, than from launching them off the surface of the Earth. So that's, that's one reason. You can do some great astronomy. You know, at the moment, that's, there's not a value proposition for the moon. No. And I guess that, that defeats a lot of technologies. One of the fun things that uh, was seemed to be very appealing, jetpacks. Yay, let's go with the jetpack. We'll all be flying to work. That's right. And, and they, again, technologies that exist, you, you, you know, there are jetpacks out there. 1984 Olympics, yeah. they jetpacks. No, absolutely. They? But they're noisy, they're big, they don't look cool, and they're kind of dangerous. You don't have to do everything that You're not technology high up allows you to do. For a parachute to be... No, that's right. Your, your plan B is not very good. So, yeah, jetpack, scratch that one off the list. You know, who knows? Maybe one day. Um, I mean, we are kind of close to flying cars. Are we really? There's, there's big money going in from the US and from Silicon Valley into flying cars. There's, there are prototypes, and actually, interestingly... Um, well, hang on. This, it's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? A flying car. A car is on the ground. They're talking about small aeroplanes. Small, small aeroplanes, basically, yeah. That you could, you know, that you'll, you'll use them as if they were a car, basically, right? Kind of Jetsons, right? You don't, you, you know, instead of driving out into the road from your garage, you... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so those things, who knows, right? There, there's certainly some people who are, who are betting on those coming in the next, in the next decade. Really? I'm just having a hard, a hard time imagining traffic laws and things like that. And yeah, well, I mean, crashes. It, again, if we if, uh, if we move to autonomous vehicles, that you know that's something we've been seeing in sci-fi for a long time. Right, and autonomous, they could fix see, it. Then potentially, yeah, you know. I was um, worried about people in there. Right. Yeah, you yeah. The well, people you, problem. Exactly. It might be all right. Yeah. We must be aware, I suppose, Sean, and you would be that it wasn't that long ago that people thought that motor cars. It's they're preposterous, and in order to drive one, you had to actually had to have someone with a flag right. walking, in, walking front, in front of it, waving it, absolutely, saying yeah. "car coming." And we did get over that. So maybe the same with flying cars. Who knows? Yeah. All right. Travelling faster than light speed. Hello, no. Star Trek. No, no, no. Sorry, no. That one's not coming. There were some very speculative ideas back when I was doing my PhD. There were ideas around wormholes, and mm. so people were exploring the possibility that you could do this. Pretty much ruled out now by physics. Wouldn't know how to make them. They'd require enormous amounts of energy to manufacture. So really, f- faster than light travel? No, sorry. There is a plan to send very tiny um, spaceship. These are sort of centimetre wafer size spaceships um, and they think they can accelerate them by hitting them with lasers so you'd, you'd, you'd build some lasers in space put them on satellites mm. and then you'd hit these little these little specks that have a light sail you'd accelerate them with the, with the laser light and they'll get there in a couple of decades and so that might be our first mm. real close-up look whether there's life in another solar system yeah so the spacecraft will have to accelerate to about half half the speed of light um, and then, de- you know, decelerate in some way. So, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, fusion. The clean nuclear yep. energy was the yep. great hope, wasn't it? It was still not here and we're it's... looking at the sun with envy. <laughs> it's doing it all day. That's right. It's always 20... Fusion power is always 20 years away. We're still working on it. There's a big program in the US and Canada um, still looking at this, and France is still trying... In Europe still trying to build a fusion reactor. Partly, they get funding to do this 
because uh, it helps keep nuclear weapons scientists busy and keep them off the streets. Good, um, good, good. good. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Stops them making uh, nuclear weapons. The big difficulty is is how do you how do you confine a plasma? So a plasma is is where you strip the electrons off off atoms. Off a, take take a gas, pull the electrons off an, off an atom, so, and so you've got positively or negatively charged ions. You've got this mixture of electrons, positively charged ions. You can generate very strong magnetic fields, um, but but dealing with that, that's the technology has has been a real struggle. They've oh. been trying to use magnetic superconducting technologies because um, you can you can uh, control the plasma using magnets but still very hard to keep things stable for long enough to actually generate fu- the fusion reactions that would be useful. Um, there's also experiments going on in the US where they blast a tiny piece of plutonium um, with massive lasers. This actually drains an awful lot of power from the US power grid. <laughs> uh, and at the moment, they're not getting it back. Um, so, so the experiments are in the net energy sink. Um, that's a possibility. It's pretty hard to see that technology becoming uh, commercially viable. But again, great for keeping weapons scientists um, occupied. Right. The famous cold fusion that was all supposed to be go. These people announced that they'd done it in their kitchen sink. Yeah, they? and there was just, there was great yeah. excitement around yeah. the world. Free energy forever. Yeah, what yeah. What happened to that? Well, it's, it turned out to not be the case. I mean, scientists, we all have that moment, and perhaps many many people, you have that moment. You've got that that brilliant idea or that unexpected result, and you know, as you get older as a scientist, you, you learn, you realise that if you're those really exciting moments where you think you've solved a really key problem, mm. that's the time to be sceptical. Um, don't let yourself be overwhelmed by enthusiasm because yeah. chances are there's a mistake, right? And, 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 um, if it you know, feels too good to be true. That's right. And so cold fusion turned out to be exactly that case. Yeah. And, and I think that the, you know, the, the key to surviving that as a scientist is to not tell everyone <laughs> and check check very carefully uh, before you make put out that press release about oh, your brilliant aren't those idea. cats that that dis, that claim the discovery aren't they still peddling I it think, around I think they're still I mean still getting funding from somewhere I think you know there's always oh, there's okay. always money I guess that's that's prepared to put mm. things into something always people are prepared to fund that with with uh, money but yeah, yeah I wouldn't be investing in coal fusion mm. I think we're we're beyond that okay um, there are a lot of things that have happened that have come about you have a look at Star Trek and cell phones easy yeah 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 easy no absolutely I mean um, and, and actually I think a lot of you know, a lot of technology, a lot more technology is going to be added to our phones over the next mm. couple of decades. Um, Spock brought out a CD in one episode. Did yeah, you, right. You've seen that? It's amazing. No, I don't think I've seen it. It's, it's a shiny disc and he sticks it in a thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it starts playing Nirvana, but... It's a, it's a, it's oh, a yeah. site. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, well, there we go. No, but those have gone away, of course. Yeah. Um, so but, they didn't survive the test of time. But I wonder... Um, well, I, no, I've still got... Still, you do? Yeah. So they're still living on? Yeah, they still live on. They, 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 they do exist. Yep. Um, now, the brain-computer interface. Yeah. Has that happened? Yes, it has. Is it called the keyboard? <laughs> But this is this is going to work via your fingers. So yeah. just lay your finger. Well, your right. Brain goes, <laughs> tells fingers what to do, and the keyboard goes into the computer. No, but actually, well, this is exactly where it's being used at the moment. So people people who can't 
people who are, are paralysed or, or quadriplegic mm-hmm. um, or have some other kind of um, motor dysfunction, um, they're developing these these devices that they attach them to your head um, and you learn how to control them using using your brain. Um, I I really have no idea what this would, this would feel like. Um, Aren't there some New Zealanders there, yeah, intimately involved with yeah, this? Yeah, research. there's actually some um, people in Christchurch that, that work in this area on assistive devices. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, so so it's so that's the that's kind of where the technology is being targeted at the moment is at helping people who are disabled. Um, uh, but. You know, coming to a, a um, uh, electronic store near near you probably sometime in the next decade. Um, right. It won't once once they've sort of developed these technologies. I'm sure there'll be many many applications for it. And even just for that wow moment, well, that yeah. the general public will get to have. Have you tried it yet? Have yeah. you put this thing on and gone? Yeah. Have you thought your way? the cursor across the screen right. that would do wouldn't yeah, it, yeah, for the yeah. wow moment yeah yeah and couple that with uh with vr technology virtual reality technology and oh, and you've got a pretty weird immersive world um that that you could pretend that you could realize uh, yeah. uh via a computer so um yeah so very interesting um and you know, potentially on the way. Mm. Immortality. I don't really know what to think about immortality, people's desire for it. Although, if you're feeling good and enjoying life, it's a fair question. Uh, is there going to be a time when you say, nah? Yeah. Uh, so immortality may be. You yeah. know, people would naturally desire it. Yeah, and I don't think we're anywhere near realising this um, or even ha- really having good ideas about how this might work. Um, so, So it's probably not something that, that's going to come up very soon. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I struggle to know how to think about it. I mean, I don't think... Um, well, how uh, narcissistic something... that you're wanting to stick around forever. No, that's forever. right. And but if course... you're healthy yeah. and doing stuff... So... Oh, I'll just pull the plug now. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. You know, you think about a lot of what we're doing now. We we're you know with with global warming and consuming resources. Yeah. You know, we're already taking from the future. Uh, we're yeah, we're yeah, yeah. we're we're gobbling things that that people in the future will want and 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 that potentially credit card's need. Running energy and so, credit card, isn't it? Um, so taking taking their space on the planet um, by sticking around too long is is also something that I think would would trouble a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but but thankfully, I'm not. You know. More realistically, you know, of course, lifespans continue to increase. Um, There's always small incremental advances that are uh, making people's lives better towards the end of their life. Um, Mm. So I think we're going to continue to see those kind of small incremental changes. Yeah. As long as we maintain um, the kind of civilization that we have at the moment. Well, yeah. There's <laughs> and I guess... The, it's always I guess, a proviso. Yeah, yeah. We're just going to have to watch that one. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Always be vigilant. Anything else you wanted to wish for or uh, technology thing? Better can opener? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as a, as a, as a, someone who's... A, you know, my science is I use computers, so I'm always keen on faster computers. Um, but that's coming to an end soon. Um, Moore's Law... Uh, we know we haven't got very long for Moore's Law to run. So that's where um, you can double the number of transistors on a, on a chip roughly every 18 months. You know, mm. that's, that's since, the, since the 1950s. Mm. We've been continuing to be able to do that. We know that's going to fall over sometime in the next decade. It's already kind of slowed down a little bit. Um, you know, fundamental physics is going to get in the way. Um, you 
no one has any idea how to build transistors out of single atoms. We can't go any smaller than single atoms. And so, right. so Moore's Law is going to fall over and we're going to have quantum computers potentially. Right. But we still don't know quite what to do with those. So, um, so if, I guess from my point of view, yeah, an increase in computational power lets me solve more scientific problems. So if we can find ways to to keep increasing that, I'll, I'll be a happy physicist. Right. I want a quantum TV set where if I am extremely disappointed with the result <laughs> of a football match, I can go into right, an alternate watch, universe and, right. and see a different result. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that would be How handy. I have wished for that. Yeah, right. <laughs> on many occasions. Italy's hopes in the World Cup before the tournament began were pinned on the shoulders of this man. He takes on Taffarel and he's missed it. Brazil have won the World Cup. <laughs> okay, Sean Hendy, fabulous fun. Thank you very much. Tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Grant Christie, hello. Hi, Graham. Uh, and go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage for some complimentary. Uh, videos and links for some of the things that we're talking about and one of them is these layers of the South Pole of Mars. It's amazing we actually get great pictures from absolutely everywhere on Mars. Oh yeah, it's it's been really done over. So yeah, this is a great shot of the uh, South Polar Cap of Mars. So this is the area that's suddenly become real interesting because uh, the uh, using ground penetrating radar essentially from uh, ESA's uh, Mars Express satellite they've actually been able to show that there's sort of uh, good evidence that there's some liquid um, pool, which right. is not, not so it's a little puddle, it's a lake-sized thing of, of liquid trapped underneath the ice of the South Pole of Mars. So, uh, you know, there's more to be done yet, but if, if it's actually, you know, proven to be true and not some sort of artefact of the electronics, which mm. seems unlikely. They've been very careful, been doing it for three years, taking these measurements. Uh, then, you know, it, it would provide one of the best opportunities to sort of get access to the really primitive conditions on Mars and mm. the possibility that there's organisms that could... Um, survive in a, an environment like that. So it's a very exciting discovery. Um, better than just a little drops of moisture on yeah. the sort of foot of a lander, which is the best we've had so far. It's about the size of Lake Kappa. It's sort of a bit smaller than that. I reckon about 20 kilometres across roughly. But uh, okay. you, know, you know, there's going to be other satellites built to probe this even further. It'll be a while, I think, probably decades before they get to the point of anything like drilling into it. Mm. Um, but uh, that that's going to be... Uh, more front of mind, I think, mm. for a lot of the scientists and mission planners in the future. Yeah, and what we're looking at with that picture, if you happen to be uh, looking at this polar ice cap, it's carbon dioxide frozen, isn't it? Yes, it's a mixture of ice and carbon dioxide ice. I mean, it's so cold on Mars that carbon dioxide gas freezes out and forms into dry, effectively dry ice. Right. And uh, But also you've got water ice as well. Um, so um, it's, it's, it's often a bit of a mixture, but I think that the the top layers of it are carbon dioxide, frost and ice on the top, mm. and, but there is water ice there as well so mm. below. But it's about four kilometres thick, this uh, ice cap. Yeah, oh, it's pretty right. thick. Okay. 
Um, now, the we've also got a video up there, uh, the journey to the centre of the galaxy. It keeps going and going and going, doesn't it? You think, oh, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are <laughs> we there yet? Uh, it's quite a thing to travel through. Yes, yes. Well, the, right at the very centre of our Milky Way galaxy, about 26,000 light years from us, is a supermassive black hole. It's about 4 million times the mass of the Sun. And all galaxies like the Milky Way, biggish galaxies, it appears they all have a supermassive black hole in the centre. Some of them more heavy, uh, heavier than the Milky Way's one, but four, 4 million times the mass of the Sun is the best we've got it close to us. And astronomers for years now, decades have been watching the motion of stars right at the very center of the galaxy it's in a in the sky it's a it's a point in Sagittarius but uh, the um, the there's so much dust and stuff in the way that you have to work in infrared wavelengths and stuff in order to see these stars and that's not accessible to small telescopes so this is the realm of the giant telescopes so they've been using the biggest telescopes on earth to peer through the obscuring dust to look at what these stars are doing close to the supermassive black hole of the mm. Center, and uh, they've these stars are in orbit, uh, and in particular, there's a star that they sort of call S2. Um, they're all called S number such and such, but this is S2. It's and, S for star. And, yeah, well, it could be. That's <laughs> right. Well, here you go. You, you could have solved a mystery there. Uh, well, the, the S2 star uh, orbits the black hole every 16 years, so it's actually orbiting really close, and it comes within 120 astronomical units of this black hole. 120 times the distance now, from the sun to the earth. That's right, 120 times. So, for, for example, Neptune's about 30 AU away. So we're uh, talking about four times the distance of Neptune mm -hmm. away. This star, every 16 years, sweeps in close to the supermassive black hole. That's going really fast then. Yeah, and the supermassive black hole, all its mass would be fitting inside about um, uh, a sphere around, with a radius of about tw uh, 12 million kilometres, which is about a, a third the diameter of Mercury's orbit. So imagine Mercury's orbit, you've probably seen it on diagrams, so shrink that down to a ball and four million times the mass of the Sun squashed into a sphere that side. Right. So this star is then orbiting around it and it every 16 years sweeps by. So what's, you know, th this is being used to test Einstein's theory of relativity and so far all the measurements they've ever done on these stars all going around this black hole have measured up and in particular they've been doing a very difficult measurement on this this time uh, using the best telescopes that have come into operation since the last time it swept by close to the black hole. They've been able to measure its velocity very precisely and they've seen for the first time direct measurements of what's called gravitational redshift. Now that means that when this star gets close to the black hole the light that the star is emitting has to climb away from the gravity of the black hole and Einstein's theory predicts that in doing that, because of that, uh, the light will lose energy and therefore appear more red. So what they've been doing is measuring the wavelength of the light coming from the star mm. and seeing whether it matches the predictions of Einstein's theory of relativity. Of course, Newton's theory doesn't predict anything like that. It wouldn't say anything, but the light wouldn't change under Newton's theory. And no other theories really predict this. Uh, so anyway, so they've, they've, done the they've pu published the first stage of these observations and uh, they're absolutely spot on in terms of matching uh, the predictions of Einstein's theory of relativity. Yeah. So it's, a, it's another little 
sort of brick in the wall, if you like, in terms of establishing... Uh, I mean, most scientists really don't need any more bricks. The brick, the wall looks pretty complete now, but yeah. these are just the last little bits being put into place. Um, and uh, there's been a number of them in the, just in the last year or two. We've talked about them on the radio. So, uh, anyway, so this is a big triumph for... Um, Einstein again and there's more observations to be made of this effect uh, and the G-forces I think in October there's another uh, point where they've got to take data but it, so far the data on this pass matches exactly the predictions, the changes in velocity and so the star's moving at about uh, 3% of the speed of light right. as it comes around the black hole that's moving pretty fast so they're measuring the changes of that the the um, the wavelength of the light coming from the star is what they're actually measuring. Far out. G-forces be a bit more than Lewis Hamilton going around a corner. Yes, yes it would. And because uh, it takes hundreds and hundreds of years for something like Neptune, doesn't it, and Pluto to go all around the sun. Yes, well, um, ne well, Neptune's, well, Pluto's about 248 right. years, uh, Neptune's about 30 years. So 16 years uh, and uh, further not 30 away. 30 years, or suddenly uh, Neptune's more Caning like, it. Um, eight, um, what was it, 160 years or something, I, just, okay. I think that's right. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so this thing really whizzing around extremely fast. Mm. Oh, did you see the eclipse? I forgot to mention it last oh. week. Yes, uh, yeah, the lunar eclipse. Yes, I climbed up my Kia Kia at, uh, in the cold, blustery morning to feel I should get up there before dawn mm -hmm. and uh, see it. Uh, so you could see the moon uh, moving into its partial lunar phase over the Waitakere Ranges, but um, there was a, a hardy group of enthusiasts, I guess, up there, just regular people. Some of them were regular walkers who just mm. hung around and looked, I guess, but others were up there especially to take photos. But unfortunately, uh, from Auckland, it got uh, clouded out and we never, you know, for the as it approached the... The, um, the horizon, we just didn't see it at all. So mm. uh, Apparently was... somebody ruined it by doing shadow puppets as yeah. well. Well, I'd seen one previously. In fact, it raises the whole question. I mean, it's uh, how rare is it to see this event? I mm. mean, basically... Uh, if you see a map of the Earth during, for uh, showing where the solar, uh, lunar eclipse is going to be, it's usually a big blob on the surface of the Earth. So anywhere within that blob, you'll see totality. Uh, and uh, so it covers a fair bit of territory. But what we're talking about here is what's the chance that you're right on the edge of that blob? So you only just, you, you're only seeing the blob basically as the total eclipse right. on your horizon. Tangential almost. Yeah, so that's right. And so that's that's a sort of a, a rare situation. But it's not uh, super rare. Mm. I mean, every, it, with every eclipse, there'll be some somebody near the edges of that eclipse that should see that mm. this effect. So somewhere on Earth you'll see it. It's not... And lunar eclipses occur a couple of times a year, typically. Right. OK. Um, now, the insensitive term. There's just been outrage... <laughs> Uh, outrage from the term Planet Nine. It's insulting and offensive. It's another form of racism. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it when I saw this. Yeah, so a, a group of uh, scientists that sort of work on Pluto uh, st still haven't got used to... I mean, it's like 12 years since Pluto was demoted from They're a planet planting, by the International Astronomical Union by a vote of, of members of the union uh, at their uh, triennial uh, meeting. Uh, but... Um, yeah, so they're still hammering away at this. I mean, to me, it, I'm not I'm not a planetary expert in any way, but it just seems that Pluto is such a different category altogether to what 
planets are that you do need to put it in a different thing. To mm. argue that it should be called a planet simply because of the accident of its discovery uh, seems wrong. I mean, we, the cases where we've discovered plenty of um, asteroids and that they sort of, uh, we know we've lots and lots of them and asteroids basically don't outgas comets do. That's the main difference. Mm. Comets have a lot of ice and stuff in them and they have tails, uh, generally speaking, when they get near the sun. But uh, asteroids don't. They're sort of basically rocky. But we have wet asteroids. And we also have had things that have been categorised as asteroids, but then finally when they get near the sun, they start sort of producing the heat up and start outgassing and suddenly says, oh, well, OK, that's not an asteroid, it's a comet. So right. they can change the category. So and it's the same with Pluto as far as I'm concerned. You know, mm. we, when we first found Pluto, it was thought to be the mass of the Earth. It was thought to be an Earth-sized object. Mm. They had no idea. And it wasn't until 1978 when they discovered that Pluto actually had a moon that they could really measure the mass of Pluto and all of a sudden they realised it was like a, um, a fifth of the mass of our moon. Mm. So it it's really... a small object. It's much smaller than our... It's yeah. smaller than our moon. It's nowhere near as dense as our moon. And so it's uh, our moon, you know would be, uh, have a better right. case to made uh, than uh, Pluto. So anyway, so it's still, but so it's, they're still going on about it. I'm, I'm surprised. They've sort of published a letter and people, a list of people in this field have signed it and saying they... They're insulted by the term they're Planet insulted. Nine. They're, 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 yeah, so it's, it's a, yeah, that's really what's kind of ticking them off predominantly because uh, they think that really should be, Pluto should be Planet Nine. That's, oh, the, un, that's the back story here. Um, so you could call it Planet X or some other name for this hypothetical planet that hasn't been found yet that could be in the outer solar system. Mm. Oh, let's just keep keep planet. We'll just say but, planet nine every day. Planet yeah. nine, planet nine, planet nine, yeah, planet well, nine. That's right. And the, and the astronomers are actually looking for this hypothetical massive planet, ten times the mass of Earth. It would could, be a planet could too. Could be there. Well, absolutely, it would be. Um, it might not have actually formed around our sun. It might be somebody else's planet that the sun captured, but yeah. that doesn't matter. It certainly got the, you know, ten times the mass of Earth. You couldn't argue that it's, it's got, got the... scummy got little the, Pluto thing. Oh, it's, it's got the creds. Yeah, exactly. We don't call Andromeda a nebula anymore, do we? No, well, that's See, another that, term. that was supposed yeah. to be in our galaxy. Or was... Well, that, that's exactly another good example because, you know, through early telescopes, when they looked at these things like the Andromeda galaxy, they couldn't see they were made of stars. Mm. They could see lots of these fuzzy little things and some of them had this spiral structure but they couldn't tell it was stars until they really had telescopes good enough to break the light up into a spectrum and see that the spectrum was the same as actually just a whole lot of starlight mm. and it wasn't a gas it wasn't a gas like the sort of Ryan nebula for example is a big gaseous mm. cloud so but so they just use nebula for meaning any fuzzy little thing in the sky their telescopes can't resolve today we know nebulas are lots of different sorts of things supernova yeah. remnants um, gas clouds forming and so on what a massive shift in worldview to um, realize that we were in a galaxy and there were other galaxies because that was not no, that long no, ago. No, no, I mean, we're talking here, this was the great debate in the early 1920s. There were these two schools of thought amongst the leading astronomers that, uh, the, that the Milky Way was somehow like a giant, they called it an island universe. And so... Uh, they, they could see the other ones, they thought the Milky Way was much, much bigger. And it wasn't until there was a, a nova detected in the 
neighbouring galaxy Andromeda and they could recognise that this was a nova and they'd seen novas in the Milky Way and then they knew how bright the nova was, they realised that Andromeda was a lot further away than they thought. Oh, right. So it wasn't something, it was therefore the object that they were looking at was actually much bigger than they realised and therefore about the same size as the Milky Way and that sort of was put, it, so that was the 1920s, so that's only 100 years ago. Mm. You know? One one consistent in discoveries, it always seems as though parochialism is overthrown. We think, oh, well, let's start. Yeah. We are the centre of the world, then the world is the centre of the solar system. No, it's not. Um, well, it's sim- <laughs> the sun to... is the centre of the universe. No, it's not. Yeah. Well, during the 1990s and from the 1990s, this revolution in our view of the whole universe changed, mm, yeah. you know, with the detection of the cosmic microwave background and understanding of the, you know, the, the all the elements of the Big Bang theory starting to drop into place and filling in the gaps. Mm. And it's still ongoing. There's still things that aren't known, but huge amount now is known. So these things we take for granted oh. were not known <laughs> that far in the past. Alrighty, uh, stealing from the solar system. Now, who knows what Planet Nine, Planet Nine, Planet Nine might be, but uh, apparently we can see the evidence of a star that came quite close by and mucked us around. Well, yes, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a hypothetical at this stage, Graham. The mm. basically what. Uh, the, there's all sorts of odd things about our solar system that, uh, in terms of. You know, why, for example, once you get out past Neptune, are the orbits all skew with? They're all over the place. Pluto's tipped up 17 degrees. Others are tipped up even more. And as we're finding more of these, we're finding these sort of kind of chaotic arrangement of orbits out beyond Neptune. So why would that happen? Originally, when the sun was a just a new star, and it would have had a disk of dust and gas orbiting in a flat plane around it. Now, why does that dust and gas stop at about 30 AU, about out just past Neptune? Beyond that, it drops like a thousandfold in density. So, if, in the material in the solar system, so not gradual, it's a wall. Yeah, and it should have just sort of carried on out. Mm. It shouldn't just terminate in quite that way. Um, so, the you know all these things sort of uh, cry out for an explanation. And what the, what these uh, analysts have done is is basically considered. Well, what say when the sun was young, it was in a in the star cluster it formed in. There were lots of other stars in close proximity then. They aren't there now. They're all dispersed. Mm-hmm. But back in the first, you know, 10 million years, the sun was part of a star cluster uh, and the possibility of a star passing relatively close to the sun was uh, significant. So the... Uh, so they, they simulated all these possible arrangements of... Uh, of um, closeness of, of passes that could happen, what was the probability of them and uh, basically to um, they, they ran all these simulations and they found that roughly in a birth cluster that the sun likely formed in this sort of situation you would have had about a, a, a round about a uh, a 0.1 percent chance per million years of a star coming um, pretty close to the uh, to the young sun. So within sort of in the order of about uh, I think it's in the order of about 160 AU or something like mm. that. So um, you know well out beyond where Neptune is now. But a star, they they in fact their best fit of their model was a star about half the mass of the sun coming in doing a close a pass 
within about 160 astronomical units of the sun and then off again. And that disturbance uh, would have destroyed mo or scattered most of the material beyond about 30 AU. Mm. Um, and uh, it also would have produced chaos in the objects that were out in that outer part of the solar system and, and scattered their orbits all over the place. Like we see. Yes. And so, you know, this hypothetical planet nine that could be out there might have been, you know, oh. it, well, possibly it was a, you know, you could even conjecture that it was a planet that was actually orbiting that star that the sun grabbed because the right. sun's more massive than the two objects. Uh, it's twice the mass of this other star coming nearby. It, the sun might have been able to grab an outer planet from that system. So it, so there's a whole Ransom series... Ransom note. That's what we should write. Yeah, so these things happen. I mean, we don't have a, a you know sort of much idea of what happened in the sun's early history. It's We, we even haven't found other stars the sun formed with. We've talked before on mm. this program about got to be there. the fact that, yeah, so siblings of the sun, stars that formed in the same from the same cloud of material that the sun formed are out in our galaxy somewhere and astronomers are on the hunt to try to find them and it's a big part of modern astronomy to try to identify those stars. And probably in the next decade they'll have a pretty good handle on some of them. Mm. Um, but uh, so, the, you know, this so this is a sort of, this is a evidence that you know, if you like, that a star at that time f that the sun was, you know, born with, mm. one of its siblings, uh, did actually do a sweep relatively close by. And, in fact, over the... So, you know, 0.1% chance per million years, that doesn't sound like a very good odds. You wouldn't bet on that. At no. Casino, but, you know, you've got a, the first billion years. It could have happened any time in the first billion years, really, of the formation of the solar system. Only needs to happen once. And it only needs to happen once. And when, if you consider 20, uh, the first billion years, it comes up to about a 20 to 30% chance that uh, that event could have happened mm. in that exactly that way. So, so it's um, it's certainly quite uh, a plausible um, mm. sort of theory. Okay, uh, we do have time. Great. Uh, some interesting crystals and meteorites. It's got a funny name, and if you whack them open, uh, you can sniff what this, this early solar system was like. What? Yeah, this is a, um, a mineral um, called um, hibonite. I mm. think that's probably how you pronounce it. It was a new one on me. Basically, it's uh, it's a quite a rare uh, mineral. Uh, you find it, it does occur on Earth, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it also turns up in meteorites. Mm. Uh, the, and hibonite is a calcium and aluminium-rich um, mineral. Uh, and it forms under where the temperatures are high. So in the Earth, it forms down below in the sort of, uh, you know, well below the surface of the Earth, and it, when it comes up to the surface by through volcanic activity, then you can find hibonite in small quantities. But it also exists in meteorites. And it turns out that they can only be in meteorites that formed at high temperatures. So the hypothesis is that they actually formed when really before the planets formed. So the, the, this was material orbiting close to the sun 1500 Celsius is too hot for, um, you know, to get planet formation. Is it? At that stage, the things have to cool off more before you get the dust particles oh. all stick together and start to build up. So okay. things have to cool off. But in the first few million years of the sun's life, the sun was very active. Um, they caught about us an unruly two-year-old. Terrible twos is uh, the way the authors of this paper described the sun's life at that stage. Very infant sun, very hot, very um, a lot of flares, a lot of energy going out, and uh, and so when you get this mineral forming, what happens is that uh, the the sun, high energy coming off the sun, fires off 
protons, which are just very high energy particles that rip into these minerals that are crystals that are formed in this high temperature zone, mm -hmm. and they smash up the smash into the calcium and aluminium nuclei and produce neon and helium. Now some some neon and helium. So inside these crystals that have come from outer space, they've turned up on a meteorite. If you were able to open those crystals and look at them, then what you should find is the residual neon and helium still locked up inside that was caused by that initial radiation. And you can actually calculate the, you know, how much you'd expect to see and so on for different conditions. So it's a way of probing our solar system at a time before the planets even existed. And so they've actually now done this in a lab. Mm -hmm. So a lab uh, using a very high sensitive um, uh, mass spectrometer in Switzerland, they were able to uh, open up some of these meteoritic crystals of hibonite, and they, in fact, were able to measure the neon and helium inside, and it does sort of basically confirm what they... Uh what they thought. So these are these are mineral. These are materials that formed prior to the formation of any planets. When the sun was probably at the earliest uh, stage of its life, within wow. within only a matter of a few million years. If it was much longer than that, then the temperature would have dropped off, and you wouldn't have got that right. material forming. And it's just uh, um, amazing that you can reach back yeah. 4.6 billion years to that very earliest stages when the sun was forming, and uh, you know, make that interpretation and understanding of the conditions at that time. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll find some heathernite and take it along to Antics Roadshow. Oh, it's, uh, you know, the, the, in fact, they, they do get sort of quite big crystals of it. Some a piece was found in Madagascar in the 1950s where you had a quite a big, it's a very lovely blue-coloured crystal, oh. but it's very rare. Oh. So it's probably worth a packet. Right. All right. When do you think this was made? Oh, this looks very old. <laughs> <laughs> well, it can be made on Earth, in which case it's not as old as the, these ones oh, that no, have come I'd on get, meteorites. I'd get one from a, You'd want a big one from a meteorite. Yeah, I'd get a big one from a meteorite. No worries. <laughs> Lots of luck. Yeah, see if Rupert the Bear or one of those people that are on Antics <laughs> Roadshow can tell the diff. <laughs> I probably couldn't. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Grant. Pleasure. Uh, and we'll talk again next week. Yeah, cheers. Yes, hello all. Uh, just a reminder that on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, you not only can have a wander around the archives, uh, there's the schedule for what's on this weekend. Uh, just a heads up, MTS Shams, probably not familiar to you, but if you have a look in the Weekend Variety Wireless, you'll see why we're talking to him. Um, he's not going to be on tomorrow night. That's the only thing on the packet that's not inside. That's because Leo Igwe, man, what a stun stunning bloke he is. Uh, does amazing work in Nigeria, trying to combat really damaging superstitions. Witches, in inverted commas, are killed there every week. All right, new sport and weather coming up next. Um, and on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, there are the astronomy links, the relevant astronomy links to some of the subjects Grant Christie was talking about. New sport and weather now. It's nine o'clock. <laughs>